as I just did, every week, and for as long as I can remember, I've been asking everybody to follow us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram. Now, by a show of hands, let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this for a second. How many people like Instagram? Okay, okay, a smattering. All right, here, yeah, okay. Had a couple of these, yeah. Now, how many people are on Instagram? Yeah, a lot more people are on it than like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people. Instagram actually is, is one of the more benign social media apps, but it could also be one of the most dangerous social media apps. And here's what I mean. And let me begin by saying this. I do use it, okay? But I use it sparingly. I'm not suggesting this is how you have to use it. I'm just telling you what I do. But I use it sparingly to keep up with the most people that I could possibly keep up with. Because there are roughly mm, three, 400 people that are part of Hammock Street Church. And, and here from people who kind of do this for a living, we, we can't hope to call everyone or text everyone every week. So Instagram helps us stay in touch and helps others see what Hammock Street is up to during the week. Now, I do understand that some of you are fundamentally opposed to social media, and you have kind of moral reasons or ethical reasons for avoiding it. So for you all, please understand, I'm not endorsing it, nor am I telling you not to use it. You guys know I'm not a cop, and I don't see anything in the Bible that tells me I'm supposed to tell you what to do with your life, and in your life, I going to tell you what God says, but you can listen to him. I hope you're not hoping to listen to me. But I'm just sharing with you an observation. So anyway, as I said, Instagram can be good for keeping up with a larger group of people, as well as for anybody to keep up with old friends, high school friends, college friends, faraway relatives, kids, things like that. And that's pretty much how it was used when it was launched back in 2010. You realize it's only been 13 years since it's been out there? Things have happened really fast in 13 years. But before long, Instagram began to be used for something else. And even though it still does remain one of the more tame social media sites, its curators don't permit adult content or criminally violent content, so, so that's a positive. But many people began using it to build their own brands. Instagram gave a lot of people a medium in which to establish or to, to, to essentially establish themselves as a brand, to embellish and advertise their own lives and their own lifestyles. It's interesting, when I was growing up, nobody really cared what I was up to. And if I did something interesting, the only person who saw what I did was, was me and maybe a friend or two that I was around. But now there are Instagram influencers in the areas of beauty and fashion and style and food and lifestyle and photography and fitness and healthcare and travel. I mean, there's all sorts of Instagram influencers. And though it can certainly be said that they provide a useful service to their followers, my daughter-in-law is, is a nurse and she provides a service for other nurses. She's actually done a guide for how to put in an IV line, which you'd think nurses would know how to do that, but you'd be surprised at how some people are trained. And she's done a really nice job of providing that service for people. 
And also, you can pick out diets on Instagram or new workouts. You can get fashion tips. You can get style tips. You know, there's, a, there's an Instagram site that's called Preachers and Sneakers. You can look it up. I'm not kidding. It's a lot of evangelical preachers, such as myself, all around the country, and um, it shows sort of what sneakers they're wearing and how much those sneakers cost. I don't participate in that, but uh, many do, and so it is, it is interesting. Uh, you, can, you can learn a lot of stuff. You can learn how to be more presentable in the workplace or out and about around town. It can be good, but like all things, it could also be bad. So for many people, Instagram has become the place to post a daily, heavily filtered, ultra-curated view of somebody's life. Many people have developed a practice of presenting, in essence, a greatest hits of their daily lives. Take all the greatest moments of their daily lives, and they put them out online for everyone to see. And the practice has been widely accepted and then replicated, copied by others. So many people are doing it. And the result of that is that when we scroll through Instagram, we're exposed to literally dozens, possibly hundreds of images showing us people who, whose lives look better and fitter and more fun and more important and more exciting and more impactful than our lives could ever hope to be. Like we go through Instagram and go, wow, people are doing stuff. I'm sitting here in my house going through Instagram. And as a result, when those accounts are viewed by other people, it stirs in the people viewing them this inevitable feeling of what? Of envy and jealousy, which has shown itself potentially to lead to some unexpected and unwanted results, as things often do. Now, apparently, constantly and continuously being exposed to the highlight reel of everybody else's life and then comparing them to our own regular day-to-day lives has provided everyone with an ever-present supply of people to whom we can compare ourselves. You want to compare yourself to somebody? Even if you don't leave the house, get out Instagram, you start comparing yourself all day long. And it's provided us a never-ending source of lives that our lives can simply not ever compare to. But that doesn't stop us from looking. Instead, it leaves us stuck in a loop, a loop of comparing ourselves to others and then feeling the pain of losing that comparison game. See, there is never any winning the comparison game. Just thought you should know that. We're now in part three of our series called You're Not the Boss of Me. And in this series, we're examining how to say no to the emotions that compete for control over our lives. See, every single one of us, because we're all people, we all have a number of emotions that compete for control of our lives. Each one of us has a number of emotions that compete for control of our hearts. And then when those emotions are in our hearts, they eventually pour out of our mouths, and then they get us into trouble because we let those emotions become the boss of us. And lest anyone think that we've gone full self-help here at Hammock Street Church, remember, Jesus is the one who got us started, who teed up this series, when he said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? 
in which, of course, the disciples, uh, duh, did see that. But Jesus was just beginning. He was just making his point, introducing his point. And his point was verse 18. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. The things that come out of your mouth come from your heart. And the things that come from your heart are the things that defile you. The things that come from your heart out of your mouth are what puts you at odds with God when they put you at odds with other people. Because that's God's big concern. God is concerned with what comes out of your mouth when it hurts people whom God loves and whom God created in his image. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, and then Mark added, along with greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and arrogance and folly. Well, Jesus knew and Jesus taught that whatever comes out of your mouth originates with what's already inside of you, with what's already in your heart. Remember the Skittles last week? When you have a jar of Skittles and you bump the jar, what comes out? Skittles. And if you had a jar of salt water and you bumped it, what would come out? Not Skittles. Salt water, okay? Everything bad we've ever said or ever done began with a thought that began in our hearts. Our hearts reflect what is already in us. And as a result, we learn to monitor our behavior so we can try to keep our destructive words and our thoughts at a minimum under wraps so that we can have some interaction in the human world so we can have success in our relationships and success in our jobs and other endeavors. We, we keep ourselves under control. As I said last week, you guys are doing a very good job right now keeping yourselves under control. You might not even be paying attention, but there you are. And if you weren't paying attention, you just went, what, what, what? That's okay. But just monitoring behavior isn't enough. See, Jesus has called us to something much more meaningful. Because of our tainted hearts, it is mission critical that we learn to and we teach our children to do as King Solomon advised us in Proverbs chapter 4. Solomon said, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. You have to guard your heart because the heart's going to show, the heart's going to come out because it's what's in us that's eventually going to come out of us. So just watching our words, that's, that's inadequate because from time to time you're going to slip. And you're going to fail at it. And when we slip up and when we offend, even though we're going to be inclined to say, oops, sorry, that was an accident. I didn't mean to say that. I take it back. That doesn't really work, does it? Does it work when you take it back, even if it's an accident? Think of it this way. When you're backing out of a space in Publix and you're fussing with your phone or not paying any attention, you smash into the car trying to sneak past you to get to that spot. You certainly don't mean to do that. Well, generally, maybe some of you do, but generally you don't mean to do it. But your intent has no impact on the fact that your, the car you hit is damaged, right? I didn't mean to bump into somebody, but his bumper's off now. So my, my intent has nothing to do with it. An accident hurts as much as a deliberate act. And it's the same with our words which is why we need to rid our hearts of the things that we can in order to take control of our lives. Hence, the series. Now, last week, we talked about guilt. And we learned to say, hey, guilt, you're not the boss of me. And shame, you're not the boss of me either. 
Well, today we're going to talk about this word, envy. Envy has to be one of the grossest things that we do. And if it's confession time, I struggle with envy, and I am not happy about it. I do it, but I don't like it. I think I come by it honestly. I come from a very, very, very high-achieving family. And as you might be aware, high achievers tend to be paid very well. And as a result, the people in my family live very enviable lives. They have nice homes, homes. They have nice cars. They have nice toys. They take nice vacations. And on top of my family, I'm still connected to all my former law partners. And they also have very enviable situations. And though I made a choice to go in a different direction in answering God's calling every so often, I think about some of the things that would have been different if I had remained in the law practice. And it makes me envious of everyone. People ask me all the time, do you miss the law practice? No. Do I miss the paychecks from the law practice? Uh, yes, I do. But I get envious, and frankly, it's not good, and I know it. And then, to add insult to injury, over the years I've met with and worked with some extremely successful people. I've met and worked with billionaires, billionaires with the B, and they really live enviable lives. Planes and drivers and yachts and vacation homes in foreign countries, man. And then on top of all of that, access to social media has exposed me to even more people who seem to be living at a level of luxury that I just don't. And all of that results in my feeling this kind of low-key, constant envy whenever I'm around any of those people or I'm watching any of those people. And it even rears its ugly head when I hear that some of those people are struggling. Because when you hear that somebody who's doing really well starts to struggle, and I'm being honest here, when I hear it, when I hear they've hit a bit of a snag, sometimes I feel kind of happy. I feel kind of vindicated in choosing my life's work over what they're doing. You know, it's interesting, the Germans have a word for that feeling. Germans have a word for all the feelings. The word is schadenfreude. And schadenfreude is defined as pleasure derived by by someone from another person's misfortune. When you see somebody going through a bad time and you feel a little good about it, that's what that is, schadenfreude. You ever experience anything like that or is it just me? Anybody? You don't have to answer. I know you do. Everyone does. I was reading the Twitter comments this week about those extremely wealthy people who died in the, in the submarine that was trying to explore the Titanic wreckage. You should have seen the comments. They were horrible comments. They were essentially, the vast majority of the comments were wishing death on the travelers because they were rich. Serves them right, I hope they die, they should spend their money on the poor, things like that. It was horrible because envy is ugly and envy is unproductive and envy is unhealthy. And because of that, envy makes a horrible boss. But God has provided us with the guidance we need to remove that envy from our lives. So let's take a look. Let's start off looking for that guidance from the wisest man who ever lived next to Jesus. And that man's name is King Solomon. Little background, King Solomon was the son of King David. And King David's wife Bathsheba, if you remember that story. 
Solomon ruled Israel at the peak of its power, the peak of its influence in the world. And that took place about 900 years before Jesus, roughly 3,000 years ago. And about envy, Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 14. Envy rots the bones. In other words, when we're envious, we are toxically focused on somebody else and what they have or what they've done, and that is very unhealthy for us. We devote too much of our time and attention to how others are doing. It eats us up from the inside. It rots our bones, which will make us rotten friends and rotten relatives and rotten coworkers and rotten spouses and rotten parents and all around rotten people. Envy embroils us in a secret competition that we can never hope to win. Envy gives rise to a competition with every single person that we know, that we observe, that we read about, that we hear about, or that we know of, against whom we think we're fighting for our lives. I'm fighting with Tom Cruise because what I see posted on social media, and he doesn't even know I exist. We all do it. And when we inevitably and invariably lose this competition, we're left depressed. And we're left with this self-loathing because we will always fall short of our perception of the success of somebody else. Nothing good comes from envy. So we need to stop being envious. You got it? Let's pray. No. It's not so easy. Because it's not something we intend to be. But it's something that we instinctively feel. And though we might wonder where this feeling came from, well, we've already answered that. Or should I say Jesus has answered that? It came from inside of us. So we all need to learn how not to allow it to become the boss of us. So last week we talked about guilt and adjusting our thinking and ultimately adjusting our hearts so that we can chase the feeling of guilt from our lives. In the case of guilt, I kind of feel like that's doable. You can kind of convince yourself to no longer feel guilty about things. But in the case of envy, I think we have a tougher fight on our hands because envy is more deeply embedded in the human psyche. We are hardwired to be envious. Now, I want you to think about that. Let's do a little test, okay? Even though we don't teach children how to envy, when you put a bunch of three-year-olds together in a room to play, how long does it take? About half a second before they start fighting over who has the most toys? They do. I well, teach the kids that. I have two sons. We never taught them that, and that's what they did. That's what envy does to a person, and it never goes away. That said, even though envy doesn't go away, it doesn't have to control our lives. Though we'll always feel the pull of envy, it's only natural to compare ourselves to others and then allow our self-esteem to be nourished by what we're doing, what we've accumulated compared to them. And it's not natural to seek after God's calling and God's desire on our lives. We don't see somebody who's doing much better than us and go, God, that's great, but what is your calling on my life? We don't do that naturally but we can learn to manage our envy. So Solomon warned us that envy rots the bones. And thankfully, he also gave us a way to deal with it. Because 
when we begin to drift, away, drift that way, Solomon's advice, Solomon's advice allows us to sort of regain our balance. So when you're envious, you're kind of off balance because you're not standing solidly on who you are and what you're doing and you feel good about that. You're kind of leaning, well, if I did that or if I did that, I would have more and all that. But Solomon's advice allows us to regain our balance because as we've discussed, when our emotions begin to drive our thoughts and actions and control our lives, they throw us off balance. Envy throws us way off balance. When, when envy is moving through us, we find ourselves saying snippy things to people or snarky things to people. We find ourselves behaving in unhealthy ways. You'll know if that's happening to you if after you make a mean distasteful or unnecessary comment about somebody's success or after you feel joy in somebody's misfortune, if you think to yourself, ooh, where did that come from? Or, or why did I say that? That's envy throwing you off balance. So Solomon gives us a word picture and a phrase that we can adopt into our thinking so that whenever we find ourselves tempted to say something mean or to jump on the bandwagon when other people are saying mean things, will be able to stop and say to envy, oh no, envy, you're not the boss of me. So here's what Solomon wrote. We're going to go to Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 4. Ecclesiastes is a book of the Old Testament. It's what's known as a lament. Solomon wrote it toward the end of his life. So he had a lot of wisdom, and he'd accumulated a thousand wives and all the riches in the world and all that sort of stuff. And he's kind of going back and looking over his life, and he's going, what was it all about? Was it worth it? And here's what he said. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. So Solomon, the wisest, richest man who ever lived. Solomon, the king who ruled Israel over her golden era and was familiar with all the peoples of the region. Solomon had treasures beyond anything we can fathom. Richer than all the rich people you can think of in the world, Solomon in his day was richer than all of them. But as a result, he also had a wellspring of advice and a wellspring of wisdom and knowledge and perspective. So that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. He gives us the wisdom of his keen observations on life and on people. And here's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, as I've observed people over the years... I've determined that everybody is competing with everybody else. And everybody is measuring how successful they are by comparing themselves to the success of others. Solomon saw that the people were determining where they were in life based on where somebody else was in life. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's human nature. And about that, Solomon's comment was, it is ridiculous. Solomon said, that's just ridiculous. He didn't say the word ridiculous, though. He said the word meaningless. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless. It's ridiculous. A chasing after the wind. Let's take a moment and develop that word picture. Chasing after the wind. Is it possible to chase after the wind? No, it is impossible. How do you know if you ever catch the wind if you're chasing after the wind? Got it, right? You wouldn't. You'd chase after the wind for the rest of your life. You'll never catch the wind. Chasing after the wind is a never-ending proposition. There is no contentment in chasing after the wind. There's no peace. There's no satisfaction 
Chasing after the wind would be an unquenchable appetite. Your dissatisfaction is guaranteed if you try to chase after the wind. And so, if you're chasing after the wind, envy becomes the boss of you. And if you allow envy to become the boss of you, in any area, envy will steal the joy from your accomplishments because there's always somebody who's accomplishing more. So when you catch yourself looking in that direction, when you catch yourself heading in that direction, when your emotions begin to go in that direction, that's when you need to step back and say, no, envy, that's just chasing the wind. And I don't chase the wind. Envy, you're not the boss of me. Chasing the wind is ridiculous. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my life, and I'm not going to do it. Now, one might say, well, wait a minute. Is this admonition from Solomon implying that we're not supposed to chase anything? No, that is not what Solomon's saying at all. Which is why when you look at something in Scripture, you've got to know what else is in the Scripture too, so you can kind of look at it and interpret it against itself. Solomon was a very successful person. You don't get to be very successful unless you're ambitious, unless you're chasing things, right? Solomon as a king probably accomplished more in his lifetime than anybody else had ever accomplished in their lifetime. So his admonition here was not sit back and don't be ambitious or sit back and be lazy. In fact, Solomon said to us much earlier in his life, in Proverbs 24, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. So Solomon's not suggesting that we become lazy or unambitious. Solomon wasn't trying to bait us into becoming aloof or to stop striving altogether, that would lead to poverty. That would just make us fools, which is where we continue in Ecclesiastes. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. You understand the, the notion, the folding the hand? When you're folding a hand, you're doing this. You're just sitting back and going, I'm not doing anything. That's folding your hands. That's what he's talking about. And then Solomon brings these two ideas together. On the one hand, don't just give up and do nothing. But on the other hand, don't stress yourself out trying to be somebody you're not. And here's how Solomon put it together. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. It's better that you have one handful of what you were designed to do, of what you were created by God to do, than to have two handfuls when one of those handfuls is just stressing you out because you're trying to keep up with someone you'll never be able to keep up with. But Solomon was teaching us that tranquility, tranquility, even if you have less stuff, less, fewer possessions, tranquility is better than having more stuff if it causes you to lose your peace and your tranquility and your sense of self. Tranquility. What is tranquility? We don't use the word tranquility that much in English. Spanish speakers use a version of it all the time. It's one of my favorite Spanish words that I've learned. Tranquilo. Just everybody thinks cool. Don't worry. Chill. Right? Just chill. Tranquilo. How's it going? Tranquilo. Everything's cool, man. Everything's chill. I love that word. It means, ah, oh, 
It implies satisfaction. It implies contentment. Tranquility is that feeling you get when you go home at the end of the day and you're able to think, today I left it all out there. I did my best. I followed God's calling in my life and I am happy with that. Oh, that's tranquility. It's lying in bed at night knowing I have peace because I'm not stressed out trying to be somebody I can't be and trying to accomplish things that maybe I wasn't called to accomplish or designed to accomplish. Tranquility is the opposite of chasing. Chasing leaves us wanting more. Chasing is an appetite that can't be satisfied. Chasing the wind. So Solomon's point is actually less is more when it leads to contentment, when it leads to peace. Peace with yourself and ultimately peace with the people around you, especially the people that are most important to you. Solomon continued, Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. So anything that causes you discontentment needs to be removed from your life. Not things that are difficult. Not things that require hard work. That's not what Solomon's saying. But rather he's saying removing the things that leave you feeling inadequate. Remove the things in your life that leave you feeling less than. Maybe get off Instagram. Maybe stop following some of those people. Maybe you're reading something every day that just makes you feel bad, makes you feel less than. Maybe you're reading a blog. Maybe you're reading from a news source. Maybe you're watching a, a news clip or an app. Maybe it's something you watch every day, like the doom, and you know, they call it doom scrolling, just the doom and gloom stories and videos that remind you over and over again of the sinfulness of man. Yeah? Read the news. If you don't understand sin, you're not reading the news. We get reminded of the sinfulness of man time and time and time again. And nowadays we're getting reminded of the negative aspects of living in a free society. Boy, are we getting reminded of that. Is we're getting reminded by people who've never lived in a not-free society. It may be a publication that's bombarding you with images of material things you'll never have. You know those shiny magazines that you get and there's no articles in them or anything, just ad after ad after ad for jewelry and watches and cars and luxury, play, right? Maybe it's stories about places you'll never go or things you'll never get to enjoy. Maybe it's a social media site that, that stirs up in you insecurities or, or your fears or your inadequacies or your shortcomings. There's so much of it out there. But anything that stirs up envy and jealousy in you, you need to remove. You need to remove it from your life because it is feeding that thing inside of you that will take over your life. That thing inside of you that will become the boss of you if you're not careful. Just get rid of it. Stop going there. Stop looking. Stop watching. And stop scrolling. Just cut it out. I promise you'll feel better. But Solomon wasn't finished. So here's another thing. Ecclesiastes 4.7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Now he's going to tell a little story. There was a man alone. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So Solomon's saying, okay, I saw something else out there. This is also ridiculous. This is just silly. This is what's going on in this world. There was a single man who was all alone. He didn't have a son and he didn't have a brother. Now, how is it relevant that he didn't have a son, didn't have a brother, he didn't name anything else? It pointed out, the fact that the man had no heirs. He had no one to leave his possessions to because he didn't have a child 
In that culture, a child would be the first one to inherit his goods. Women were unable to inherit in that culture. And he didn't have a brother. According to the Jewish law, the brother, if there's no children, the brother would be next in line after a son for an inheritance. So this guy was all alone, had no son, no brother, but the guy was a workaholic. And he was incapable of being content with his wealth. All he was doing was accumulating wealth for the sake of accumulating wealth. And Solomon told us that the guy seems to have wondered about the same thing. So the guy was doing all this, and he thought to himself every so often, here's what he said in verse 8, For whom am I toiling? Why am I doing all this? Why am I working so hard? And it's a question we should ask ourselves from time to time. Why am I even doing this? I mean, seriously. Who am I doing this for? Am I doing it for my kids? I'm never home. They never see me. Am I doing it for my wife? We haven't had a good conversation in years. What's really driving me? What am I trying to prove? And to whom am I trying to prove it? Which should lead us to ask a more global question. Why do I stress myself out to do everything that I do? Though there are a lot of defensive responses to this question, you read that question and you go, well, I'm doing it for my family. Or I'm doing it to make my parents proud. Some people even say, I'm doing it to make my father proud, but father hadn't been around in years. I'm doing it to carry on my family's legacy. Or I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for myself. If we want to keep envy from being the boss of us, we need to get honest. Because the truth of the matter is when we find ourselves hyper-focused on impressing others, with our toil and our successes, the only boss we're actually serving is the boss of envy. This is an important question because until we have an answer, our desire for the approval of others or for the possessions of others will not cease to rule over us and will continue to give up one handful of tranquility for two handfuls of striving and chasing after the wind. But Solomon's Imaginary example kept on asking the question, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? That's another great question. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Have you ever come to the realization, oh my goodness, I'm not even enjoying the things that I have? You ever go out and buy a bunch of clothes that you really liked, and you hang them in your closet? And then about two years later, when you're going through your closet because it's too full, you see a bunch of clothes with tags on them? Ever happen to you? When our kids were little and we got hand-me-downs from very wealthy people, I can't tell you how much of it came brand new from the store. Tags never, ever removed. Why am I doing this stuff? Why am I depriving myself? Why? I'm not even enjoying what I have. I don't even slow down long enough to, as they say, stop and smell the roses. And now that I think about it, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing at all, ever, half the, or at least half the time. It's kind of a death spiral, isn't it? We keep going, and we keep doing because we feel like we have to go, and we have to do, but we're not enjoying it, and it keeps going and going and going. And it kills relationships, and it kills your family. And a lot of the time, we don't even understand why we're doing it. We don't understand what's driving it. And we don't even try to figure it out because we don't want to know sometimes. Because sometimes it's envy, and you don't like to perceive yourself as envious. Or sometimes it's envy's evil cousin, jealousy. For others of us, it's just a comparison or, or, or just chasing after the approval of somebody who isn't even aware that we crave approval from them. 
The man in Solomon's example couldn't enjoy what he had, and he had no idea why. And Solomon said, this too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. He sounds very Jewish there, doesn't he? It's a miserable business. What a horrible way to live. What a miserable business that is. In other words, living like this will make you miserable. And even if you hit every benchmark, every goal, at the end of the day, you'll find yourself miserable and you won't know why. If you're not a Christian, you'll never reach your full potential as long as you're living for and focused on comparing yourself to what others are doing and becoming. But if you are a Christian, it's even more problematic because you'll never experience God's purpose for your life if you're too busy being distracted by God's purpose for somebody else's life. Finding the race that God has called you to run while not looking over your shoulder or looking at all the other lanes to see what everybody else is doing is an incredibly freeing and incredibly powerful thing to do. And it allows you to work harder, but with more peace and more contentment and greater actual success. It's a win-win. Now, I get to say this stuff to you. I, I haven't figured it all out yet either, so don't think I have. But here's what I am doing. Every day, I'm getting better. And I'm getting much better at catching myself and saying, envy, you're not the boss of me. That's chasing the wind, and I don't want to do that. And we started off today, we started with this verse, envy rots the bones. But that was only part of the verse. So now I want to give you the whole verse. A heart at peace gives life to the body. Envy rots the bones. The whole bit of advice bit of advice that Solomon gave us about envy includes the fact that finding peace, finding contentment, finding that sense of I've done my very best and I will be content with one handful of tranquility. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but it's envy that rots the bones. In other words, you cannot compete or compare your way to peace. You cannot win by chasing the wind. And if you're a Jesus follower, God has already given you a race to run. And God has already given you a lane to run in. So stay there and thrive there and positively impact the lives of the people around you from there. Because the moment that you get out of your lane, the moment you allow envy and comparison and jealousy to be the boss of you, do you know what you stop doing? You stop being concerned about anybody else. Because envy and jealousy are thoroughly self-centered. It is impossible to care about somebody else if you're overly concerned with yourself. That's why that horrible feeling of schadenfreude comes up when someone else fails. It comes from that false sense of the lower you go, the higher I get. The less you succeed, the more I succeed. It's a zero-sum game in your mind, but it isn't. That's such a lie. But that's what envy and jealousy do. They lie to us. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called to a better life. And you've been called to a life in the lane that God has called you to run in. And from that lane, you can do more for other people because you'll be less concerned about who and where you are compared to other people. People who are consumed with envy don't even like to hear about other people's successes. But the better course of action is to listen to the advice from 
Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's a psychoanalyst, Canadian psychoanalyst, here's what he said in his book, 12 Rules for Life. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. If you're insisting on comparing, then compare yourself to yourself. Compare yourself to where you were yesterday. And use that to help you to continuously draw closer and closer to God every day. And if you're doing that along the way, be content with what you have. Be content with the things that God has blessed you with. Because do you know what happens when you begin to count your blessings? You become grateful. If you wake up every morning and instead of saying, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, my bones hurt. And trust me, I wake up every morning and say, oh, my bones hurt. Or, oh, it's too hot. Or, oh, it's too early. If you wake up every morning, you won't be content with your day. But if you wake up every morning and you wake up counting your blessings, do you know what happens? You become grateful. You become grateful for those blessings. It, it excites you. It gives you energy. It gets you right out of bed. And grateful people become generous people. Because grateful people are not self-centered people. So just count your blessings and don't worry about everybody else's blessings. God has called you and God has called me to do something specific. And you don't want to miss out on the life that God has in store for you. You'll never experience life to the full that Jesus promised. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. As long as you're trying to get in on the lane of somebody else around you. You need to focus on the life that is right in front of you. So the next time you find your mind and your emotions drifting toward that sense of envy, envy and that sense of comparison, you need to stop and declare, maybe out loud, envy, you're not the boss of me. I will not chase the wind. You guys are already ahead of me. Let's try it together. Envy, you're not the boss of me. I will not chase the wind. And anyway, if you're a Christian, you already have a boss of you, and his name is Jesus, and he gave you some very specific instructions. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's a weird syntax, so we flip it around. If you love one another, then people will know that you're my disciples. Now, in the context of our conversation today, here's how that works implied in these words from Jesus are don't compare yourself to one another. I've called you to something much higher. I want you to love one another. Envy always gets in the way of love. It is impossible to do both. Why is that? Because it's by this, Jesus said, by this loving one another, not by being envious of one another. By this loving one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love if you celebrate, if you cheer on, if you refuse to give in to, if you love one another, that's where peace and purpose are found. Celebrate what everybody else is doing and leverage who you are and the opportunities that come your way in order to serve and celebrate other people. It's there that you will find peace and ultimately that's where you'll find your purpose too. So as we wrap up, I need to ask you one more question. How are you doing with this? Is it possible that in some area of your life, envy has become the boss of you? Well, what can you do about it? Because if you don't address it, you will end up chasing the wind. And that 
is meaningless. And if you do what is meaningless for too long, guess what happens? Your life becomes meaningless as well also. The way you find meaning in this life is by becoming a means to an end that is not you. Envy will drag you into self-centeredness, and it'll drag you into a self-centeredness that drains your life of meaning, and you don't want that. And the world certainly doesn't need any more of that. So let's let Jesus be our leader. Let's let Jesus be our boss. Let's follow Jesus. Because unlike envy, Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the wisdom of Solomon. He had seen so much and he'd been through so much and he left us with so much. It's, it's an amazing thing you preserved these words for us all these years, 3,000 years. God, as we head from here and we get back into the race and we pick up our phones and we start scrolling through all the stuff that we're not doing and we wish we were and the places we haven't seen and the things we don't own, help us to, help us to love on others and stay focused on what you've given us to do and what you've given us to, to shepherd and to keep for you because, God, that's why we're here. We're here to serve you and tell others about you. Bless us as we go, Father. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.